Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the past 50 years, Americans have basically responded to the case against eating animals by consistently eating more animals. We have heard again and again about the moral and ecological cost of eating meat, from viral documentary footage of slaughterhouses to activist organizations like PETA, scientific reports on the fossil fuel cost of producing a medallion of beef. And it hasn't made much of a difference. The share of Americans who call themselves vegan or vegetarian has barely increased in the last 20 years. With every passing decade, Americans have eaten more and more meat per capita. And this doesn't make us unique, by the way. As most countries get richer, they eat more and more meat. But a few years ago, I was certain that we were near peak meat. I saw the rise of plant-based meat products like Impossible Burgers and Beyond Meat Sausages, and I thought they seemed like a landmark moment in food history. Right? For decades, telling Americans what they should not eat, that had not worked. But maybe using technology and innovation, entrepreneurship, to expand the menu, giving Americans more meat alternatives, I thought maybe that would work. And to a certain extent, this was mere projection. I am a meat eater. 
I really like steak. But also, in the last few years, I have eaten a bit more Impossible Burgers and a lot more Beyond Meat meatballs. In 2019 and 2020, I looked pretty smart with this peak meat prediction. Meat substitute products truly surged. There was a moment where it seemed like every chain, Dunkin', McDonald's, Burger King, were experimenting with fake meat. But the last two years have made my peak meat prediction look pretty silly. Beyond Meat's publicly traded stock is down more than 80% from its all-time high. Impossible has announced layoffs of more than 20% of its staff. Restaurants have slashed their plant-based meat options. So what happened? Well, today's guest wrote a blockbuster story for Bloomberg on this very topic. Dina Shanker has been covering the food industry for many years, since we actually shared an office in New York about 10 years ago. In this episode, we talk about the spectacular rise and fall of fake meat, and what it tells us about food and taste and politics and technology. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Dina Schenker, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's tell this story properly. In 2009, Ethan Brown founds the company Beyond Meat. What does he tell the world he's trying to accomplish? Ethan had what was at the time a really revolutionary idea. He was going to mimic animal meat using plants. Now, of course, plant-based protein has been around for thousands of years, but the idea that you could make a piece of food that was essentially meat, that looked like meat, smelled like meat, tasted like it, cooked like it, but you were going to make it only with plant materials was a really new idea at the time. And a few years later, another Brown, a Stanford University biochemist named Pat Brown, no relation to Ethan, founds Impossible. This is 2011, and he makes some even grander claims about the future of his company, including in a profile for The New, York, for the New Yorker magazine. He says, we're going to take a double-digit portion of the beef market. We're going to send meat into a death spiral. What are some of the most important differences between uh, Brown 2 at Impossible and Brown 1 at Beyond? So Ethan wanted, at Beyond, Ethan wanted to make his uh, plant-based meat by kind of breaking down plants into their component parts and then reassembling them so that they would match uh, what meat looks like, what he called sometimes the core architecture or the blueprint of meat. Pat Brown at uh, Impossible had a different idea. His was that uh, meat got its essential meatiness from uh, something called heme. Heme exists in all uh, plants and and meats, but it's in the highest concentration in beef. And so he said, I'm going to make heme out of soy and I'm going to use that and I'm going to put it in my meat-like products to make those really meaty. So they were both going after the same goal, but in different ways. 
Right. He, he basically finds this, it's like an iron-based compound, heme, right? H-E-M-E. He finds a way to produce it with genetically modified yeast, and that gives it its sort of like bloodiness. I remember when I lived in, in New York, I lived in the East Village of New York in like 2012-ish to 2014, and um, across the street, there was a Bear Burger. And Bear Burger was one of the first companies to sell Impossible Burgers. And I remember biting into one and not hating it and being shocked I didn't hate it and feeling like, oh, this thing, it kind of looks like it's bleeding, right? It, it is, is that sort of bleeding effect, does that come from heme itself or is that just a part of the general plant-based magic in these alternative meats? Yes, that does come from heme. Um, and actually, uh, Ethan at Beyond also wanted his burgers to bleed, um, but he did it with beet juice. So uh, the idea that the burger would be bloody in the middle was uh, common to both of them, actually. And give me a sense of the kind of promises that the Browns were making, not just to their investors, but also at like TED Talks. Because what I find so interesting about these kind of companies is that like there are VC-based companies that are raising money, and then there are like TED Talk-based institutions that are trying to raise prestige or excitement. And they were really succeeding on both accounts, right? They were mainstays in these kind of conferences, and they were raising hundreds of millions of dollars. So what were the promises they were making? How were they doing it? That's right. So um, they were... Uh, really taking advantage of this conference circuit and getting their message out um, in front of these uh, really, I think, educated groups of people that for years um, have been hearing about and talking about the problems in our food system and the way the problems in our food system were uh, terrible for the environment, terrible for our health. Um, and the, there was always a question as to how we were going to solve these problems. Now, here comes Ethan Brown, and he says, I have a solution. My plant-based meat is going to help solve our health problems. And he would say on the stage, he would list cancer, diabetes, heart disease. Um, and it would also help our environmental problems, natural resource depletion, um, climate change. And um, he made this great case for, oh, and of course, animal welfare, which we also have all learned about sort of how uh, gruesome uh, factory farming can really be. So uh, that was, Ethan was going to solve all three. Uh, Pat um, Pat really focused on the environmental piece um, more than anything. He talked about um, the quote unquote ongoing wildlife holocaust that was happening because of uh, humankind's insatiable demand for beef. And it should be said that uh, Neither Brown was wrong when they were talking about the way our uh, demand for meat hurts the environment, our health, um, and animals. These are all real problems. Um, what they were offering was a solution um, that uh, was really sexy to a lot of people because it didn't involve um, changes in policy. It involved uh, a new consumer product. I think that's exactly it. You know, people like, say, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the celebrity investors, they want to bet on the future they want to live in. They want to bet on a world that has less animal cruelty, that has uh, less climate despoliation, but they also want to make money. And so it was so thrilling about these companies is that, is that they seemed to crack a code that allowed them to do everything at once, to save the planet, save the animals, and make a crap ton of money. So in 2019, Beyond Meat goes public, and it is a total gangbuster. It is, as you reported, the most 
successful initial public offering since the 2008 financial crisis, the most uh, successful IPO in a decade. Can you help me understand why? I mean, uh, there's there's the sort of attitude enthusiasm about it, the, the sort of the, the hope that we're going to save the world, but they were also notching some pretty significant commercial victories too, right? That's right. So um, Impossible and Beyond went different routes to sort of the mass consumer uh, commercialization. Basically, uh, Beyond went first into supermarkets. And uh, the big first win for Beyond was when Whole Foods put Beyond burgers um, in their meat case so that they would attract um, not the vegetarian who knows that uh, veggie burgers are usually in the freezer, but that it would be the meat eater would go to buy their ground beef and they would see this option and think, maybe I'll try that. So that was a really big deal. Uh, Impossible went a different route. They went through restaurants and they didn't have a lot of product at first. Um, and so they did what, uh, was, a, a really, uh, really great way to get headlines without having a lot to sell, which is they went to really fancy chefs. So the first chef that sold the Impossible Burger was David Chang at Mama Fukunishi in Manhattan. And, um, David Chang is not just like a well-known chef. He's a well-known chef who loves meat. So, and here he is, and he's endorsing this, this burger. And, um, that was the route that, uh, Impossible took was they went from David Chang to other high-end chefs. Um, and, uh, beyond went supermarket chain after supermarket chain. Um, pretty soon though, it became clear that the, uh, the real battle for attention and wins was happening, um, with fast food. And, um, we saw this like, uh, back and forth, like each one claiming new, uh, partners, um, you know, uh, beyond got Carl's jr, which again was like this really big deal because Carl's jr, you know, this was the, um, this was the same burger chain that had those crazy commercials with like Paris Hilton, like in a bikini eating a big juicy <laughs> burger. And they were going to sell the Beyond Burger. What an endorsement, you know, and um, Impossible got White Castle, which was a really big deal. Um, and then um, after Beyond went public, uh, Beyond got uh, Dunkin Donuts with their sausage and Impossible got the really, really big win, which was the Impossible Whopper at Burger King. And I'm not trying to create a moral equivalence here, but there is a commercial analogy here to be made with something like blockchain, right? A new technology comes online and every company that can conceivably incorporate the blockchain into their business says, oh, we've got a blockchain business. We've got a blockchain option. We've got a, blo a blockchain product and it's JP Morgan and it's Stripe. And it's just, it's everyone trying to get in on what they think is going to be this emerging future within their sector. And to be clear, this emerging future, a little bit like crypto and blockchain, has an incredible 2020. From your piece, quote, Americans bought 5.3 million units of fresh meat alternatives in the eight weeks ended April 25th, 2020. Those are, you know, including the first uh, uh, six weeks of the pandemic. That was three times the amount of a year earlier, according to Nielsen. Suddenly, you write, Beyond's prediction in one of its investor pitch decks that fake meat was on track to become the new fake milk was looking increasingly plausible. Help me understand why you think 2020 was such a great year for this alternative meat sector. So the first thing is that uh, the Beyond Meat IPO in 2019 not only boosted Beyond, it also it 
it paved the way for all these other companies um, to start introducing their own products. There were startups that had uh, new products. There were uh, big companies like ConAgra and Nestle that were either sort of like giving their old products new uh, facelifts or uh, introducing new ones. Tyson even started getting into the plant-based uh, market. So you had in supermarkets, if you went to look for a plant-based meat product, you could get a new product every time. There was just a constant flow of new products. So when, um, you know, everybody got locked down um, from the pandemic and people had a, a different kind of disposable income because they weren't going out to restaurants, they weren't going on vacations, and and food really took on a, a really important new role in those months. Uh, and so for a lot of people, this was a great opportunity to try plant-based meat. One was a lot of people were trying to be healthier and everyone thought this is a, a really good way to do it. People were also just bored and this gave mm -hmm. them like uh, something new to try. Um, and so you just had, and of course there was a, a shortage of, of real meat in supermarkets. You couldn't find the real thing. And so you had all of these factors sort of converge into this huge opportunity for this category. Right. It was a perfect storm. I remember in the first maybe six months of the pandemic, uh, I loved going to bars and suddenly I couldn't go to bars anymore. I had never really been a cocktail maker myself. And suddenly I was like, okay, you know what? I still want a Negroni. I still want a dirty martini. I'm just going to learn how to make it at home. And so I think a lot of people, whether it was for them, it might've been cocktails, might've been board games, they were trying new things. There was like a, a, an explosion in novelty curiosity. Let me figure out some thing I can add to my life so that even though I am not leaving my living room and life could not be more effing boring, it still feels like there's variety in my life. And this new food category offered a, a perfectly easy way to inject variety into dinner. You could say, you know, kids, we're gonna, you know, have pasta again and pasta and meatballs, but this time, it's going to be beyond meatballs. And let's like compare and contrast what, you know, Tuesday's dinner feels like versus, you know, Thursday's um, pasta and actual meat meatballs. I, I think that 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 novelty demand was was such a huge part uh, of the boom at this time or in, in the next year as the world began to open up. But now tell me what's happened to the alternative meat market since 2020. So the sales have just really fallen since then. Uh, we had some numbers in our story uh, that showed in supermarkets uh, sales of refrigerated plant-based meat, uh, which is that section where they were really going head-to-head -head with the real animal meat. Um, those sales fell 14% by volume for the 52 weeks ending December 4th, according to IRI. Um, and in restaurants, um, sales uh, of the, or orders of the plant-based burgers um, were down 9% um, for the 12 months ending uh, November, 2022. Um, so what we've seen is that just sales are falling in restaurants and in supermarkets. And this is what's so interesting to me because it's like one of these Icarus narratives where you have a revolution that seems to be rising and rising and then it suddenly crashes. And like just within three years, you have this sector that includes the largest IPO in a decade. And then suddenly, as you just reported, it's falling by about 10% uh, within supermarkets and about 10% in restaurants. So I want you to help us figure out why. Um, one possibility is that alternative meat, fake meat, whatever you want to call it, it's basically a fad. And when I say a fad, I mean it's something that consumers want to do a little bit for a little while, but then they want to stop. 
And in this way, it kind of reminds me of another food startup, Blue Apron. My wife and I tried Blue Apron. We ordered the food. We looked at the menus. We did it for about four weeks. And then we were like, okay, we're done. If every single Blue Apron customer does what we did, Blue Apron cannot make a profit. Its unit economics are completely screwed. And it turns out that Blue Apron's unit economics have been rather screwed. So first, let's discuss this sort of faddish element. Do you have any data, any reporting that Americans who were buying alternative meat simply stopped? Yeah, so basically what we found is that um, the target market for these products, which was always the meat eater, um, is not a frequent buyer. Um, and that means that the people that buy the most of it per capita are actually uh, vegans and vegetarians who are a very small uh, and generally static percentage of the population. Um, and so uh, meat eaters do eat these products sometimes, but just not with any level of frequency that vegans and vegetarians do. Yeah, no, I... I I, I didn't realize that until I read your reporting, but it's it's just so true. You cannot be, definitionally, you can't be a growth category if a non-growing s- portion of the U.S. population is buying a steady share of your product. Like, there's just nowhere to grow. They wanted to be a meat alternative. They wanted to be served in supermarkets, you know, next to beef. But the people who eat beef, I guess, just stopped buying the product after a few times. I wonder whether that leads us to number two, which is that it's not just that people preferred the taste of hamburgers, but also there were some health concerns, right? How, how did how did the promised health benefits of the alternative meat product match up against some of the research about these products' health? So uh, Ethan Brown, uh, as we discussed, made these really big health proclamations about his products. and. Um, one of the things that Ethan has said is that um, it can even improve like athletic performance um, on that very same day. And um, a lot of people came to the category with this idea that they were going to eat something healthy for them, that it was good for them. Now, Pat Brown at Impossible, uh, he handled this question differently. He was not really coming out there and making these huge um, promises around health. But when somebody asked him about health, he would always say something along the lines of like, well, it's not a kale salad, but it's healthier than a regular burger. Mm -hmm. What uh, consumers took away at first was like, these are healthy. Now, healthy and healthier are different. And from my reporting, talking to uh, the doctors that have looked at this most closely, the best thing that they say is that it's probably healthier than a than a Burger King burger. That's the best thing that they say. Mm-hmm. They uh, another one of the doctors I spoke to, uh, Doctor David Katz, who um, is himself a big advocate of plant based diets, and he really believes in them um, f- from a health perspective, animal welfare, environmental. He says at best these burgers are a lateral move from a uh, from a like a Burger King burger. So what does this mean? This means that um, if you're a consumer and you're trying to pick something healthy. Maybe you're learning that this isn't healthy. Maybe it's healthier than a Big Mac. Um, maybe, maybe, but uh, it's not healthy. If you want to have something healthy, um, maybe you uh, 
maybe you hear from your doctor that you'd be better off with a piece of grilled chicken or lentils. Um, there's a lot of healthy food out there. Nobody is saying that these foods, nobody that isn't selling these foods is saying that these are healthy foods. I think that's so important because I, I can, you know, if I want to get on my soapbox here, I can say like, look, if fake meat is better for animals and better for the environment and a lateral move from a health standpoint and only a little bit less delicious than a Whopper, then like on net, it's clearly better for the world and people like should eat it. But that should is very different than is. And in the real world, like people just aren't thinking about these like moral categories, I think, when they're worried about like, what am I gonna feed myself or my kids or my partner, my husband, my wife for dinner on Tuesday? Like they're just thinking about these simple things of price and of, of taste and cost. And it just seems like th the, this product category hasn't overcome those anxieties about taste and cost. Another thing that we've seen is that as you've mentioned, like the corporate deals have really started to tumble. Like Duncan pulled the faux sausages, Taco Bell um, did this taste test with Beyond's uh, carne asada, but the reviews were mixed. Um, the McDonald's McPlant burger doesn't seem to be a mainstay. W what is the fact that companies have not held on to these products told you about the consumer reaction to them? When these companies were first figuring out their way into the market, when Beyond and Impossible were first figuring out how are they going to reach the most consumers, um, they were talking about supermarkets or restaurants and sort of which is going to hit more people. So in some ways that... Uh, it made total sense to go to to try to go through Burger King or McDonald's, right? Because those have just massive customer bases. You'll get in front of more people that way than you could ever imagine. But like you said earlier in the show, that that certainly depends on Burger King and McDonald's. Um, and it also leaves open the question of whether you're selling to the consumer that is most likely to buy your product. These products do have uh, consumers that want them. Um, I think um, they have the tests have shown that the consumers at the at the fast food restaurants are not those consumers. Um, you know, there have been some success stories. The Impossible Whopper is still on the menu. Um, they've added another Impossible Burger at Burger King, but the sausage and the chicken that they've tried there just have not landed in a way that put them on the main menu. And, um, you know, uh, in a Bloomberg interview, Peter McGinnis, the, C the current CEO of, of Impossible, said during uh, one of those tests that if it went well, it would get on the menu. And then it did not get on the menu, which uh, they, they don't usually tell us the results of the test, but that was during the test he said that. Um, and so you will still find people that uh, really like uh, their uh, Impossible chicken nuggets, but um, maybe they weren't the ones that were buying, that maybe they weren't going to Burger King to buy them. And so um, these companies uh, want, you know, one thing they had really did achieve with these big deals um, was getting their name out there. The awareness that comes with a Burger King deal is just unparalleled. Um, mm -hmm. But that is not the same as uh, selling um, tons of chicken nuggets at Burger King. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. Meanwhile, there's this other meat alternative that has found its way into the hype cycle, which is cellular meat. Uh, this has gotten a lot of attention from, again, celebrities and investors. It, it, it checks the boxes of, of TED Talk morality and investor interest. Um, Bill Gates is into it. Leonardo DiCaprio is investing. What is cellular meat? And where is it in the sort of technology cycle relative to the plant-based options we've been discussing? So cellular meat is made by, uh, in its simplest explanation, is they extract cells from living animals, um, like a cow, and then they grow those cells um, by adding um, components to, uh, quote unquote, feed it. Um, and then theoretically, they then grow enough cells to make something like a burger or a chicken breast. Um, now, uh, they have a lot of money. They've raised over $2 billion to, to do this. There are a lot of companies that are, that are trying. Um, and, and a lot of them are making small amounts of product. Um, so far, none of them has said that they can do it at scale. Um, so that's one really big barrier. Um, there has not been any definitive study showing that it's actually better for the environment, unless we're talking about beef, which beef looks like it will be better for the environment. But there's so much um, energy and electricity um, and heating required to, to do this that uh, right now it doesn't look like the chicken made this way is going to be better for the environment than chicken raised on a farm. Um, and so it's very expensive trying to um, do these things for the first time is extremely expensive. And then trying to do them over and over again will also cost a lot of money. Um, and on taste, um, 
you know, I've, I've had, uh, I've had some cell-based, uh, animal products and, um, I would just say that the chicken I had a couple years ago was okay. Um, and the salmon I had was, was actually really impressive, but, um, they're certainly, they have a lot of work to do, like a, way more work than um, plant-based meat had um, when they uh, first got started. So um, where this will go is is an open question. And then, of course, do consumers want it? That's something that uh, we're seeing. Consumers have been rejecting plant-based meat um, for the reasons we discussed and whether they will ultimately accept um cell-based meat, which is uh, more foreign than plant-based meat, is just another big question. Yeah, it raises something that I haven't talked about a lot, I guess, in the last few minutes, which is a a kind of ick factor. You know, if you tell people, like, we made this meat from plants and it bleeds because we found a way to imitate an iron-based compound that makes plants fake bleed, like, for some people, it's like, that's really cool. Like, what an incredible technological achievement. And for other people, it's like, I'm sorry, you want me to feed this to my three-year-old? Like, are you nuts? Like, that sounds absolutely disgusting. And so, like, ick is very, very personal. It's up to every individual to determine, like, what is cool and what is disgusting. But I have to imagine that even if cellular meat, and I say this as a huge fan of the technology, even if it passes certain thresholds of taste and cost, it's still going to be a chicken grown in a Petri dish, you know, a beef grown in a lab. And for some people, it's just going to take, I think, several years for them to get over the idea that their ribeye comes from um, a scientist with a Petri dish rather than uh, an actual moo-moo cow in a farm. I want to close with just two questions about like what this all means. Um, You draw a really interesting comparison in your piece. You say, look, there's been a revolution in alternative milk. There's been this revolution in, you know, almond milk and soy milk and oat milk. Why do you think milk alternatives have thrived where meat alternatives have not? Milk alternatives uh, seemed like a really good comparison um, a few years ago, Uh, but there's some major differences between milk and meat. The first is that uh, there is a built-in audience for the uh, alternative dairy products, and that's those people that are lactose intolerant. So they physically cannot eat milk or drink milk, but they still want to have cereal in the morning. Um, They still want to have their coffee. The second um, thing that I think is also really important is that milk is very often an ingredient. It is not the main course. So um, somebody might... uh, be perfectly happy. Uh, they might prefer even um, oat milk in their coffee um, because the coffee is the main ingredient. They just want something to make it like a little creamy. Um, but that same person might have a grilled cheese for lunch because they still like cheese. They still like dairy. They're not rejecting dairy. Um, and so uh, those two differences, I think, are hugely consequential for this uh, comparison and were maybe overlooked a bit uh, in the early days of the rise of fake meat. The complementarity part of it, I think, is so important. I eat the vast majority of my plant-based meat as meatballs and pasta. And there, it's not about like me focusing on the taste of the meat. It's like, this is one of like three or four flavors in every single bite. You got the pasta, you got the tomato, you got the salt. And yeah, there's like a little bit of meatiness in there. And that's kind of nice to have. And it's cool that it didn't, you know, require the the um, the death of an animal. Um, but there again, it, it's much more like almond milk 
in cereal than it is like an impossible um, meat patty being like the centerpiece of a of a hamburger. Uh, what is the rise and fall of alternative meat or fake meat? What has it taught you? Like, what are some of your big picture lessons about like about business, about hype? Like when like going forward as you report on, there's going to be new generations and new incredibly exciting hype cycles in the general space of food. Um, what's what's a lesson that you're taking from this Icarus story? One thing that I've learned from following this particular category, but also that I've learned from my uh, decade-ish of, of covering food is that food is really hard. And a lot of businesses try to get into food um, to improve it in some way. And it just, it's a, I think it's a lot harder than people expect from, a, one is the margins are, are really small. Um, the other is that consumers are fickle um, and uh, don't necessarily make the choice in the store that they say is the choice they'd like to make. Um, yeah. And that uh, people have really strong feelings about food. And so um, people might be willing to make certain sacrifices for the greater good in a lot of parts of their life, but that doesn't always translate into their food choices. And whenever anybody wants to get into the food business, I just strongly advise them to be really careful because I've seen so many food businesses um, get ahead of themselves. Uh, and um, I've also seen some succeed, but mm. I think uh, food is really hard and um, people make their food choices based on a lot of different factors that are changing all the time. And so uh, any, it's, it's a tough business. It's a tough business for anyone. I'm so glad you said that. I think it's I think it's a really profound point that food is really hard. And a part of why changing food is really hard is that you know, companies like Impossible and Beyond Meat, they have what you can think of, as I said, they have like a TED Talk identity and they have a dinner table identity. And the TED Talk identity is like, is this business good? Is it good with a capital G? Is it doing good for the planet and good for the environment? And is it good for your body? Like, is it good? But then like there's the dinner table identity, which is like, does it taste good? Like, do, 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 do I think it's kind of gross when I think about, you know, heme? Do I think it's delicious when I'm actually like chewing it? Do I feel like a food that is extremely processed, but does involve animals is something that I want to serve my five or six year old every single day. That's an incredibly complex stew of identity to think about. And I think that one big lesson for me is that I I personally, in rooting for this product category, let my enthusiasm for the TED Talk identity of um, of alternative meat to eclipse like the dinner table identity of this product category. It, it just, bottom line, it didn't taste good enough. It didn't taste good enough to win the test at McDonald's. It didn't taste good enough to stay on the menu at Dunkin'. And it hasn't tasted quite good enough for meat eaters to buy it in growing numbers um, in supermarkets. Dina Schenker, thank you so much for walking us through this story. Um, and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five-star rating, leave a review. And don't forget to check out our TikTok, at Plain English underscore. That's at Plain English underscore on TikTok. 